Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. everybody. Happy Monday. Welcome to another episode of the show. Good to be back in the swing of things, not gonna lie, and uh, very excited to bring you this conversation today. I had it remotely when I was still in Thailand um, quite a while ago at this point, Uh, but it was so profound and It has stuck with me uh, in innumerable ways since, and um, yeah, it's a heavy one. It's uh, it's with Madeline and Henna. Um, They uh, founded something called the Climbing Grief Fund, um, which uh, grant uh, raises money to give grants um, to those suffering uh, with grief and loss within the climbing community. Um, the grants can be used for talk therapy or vision quests or anything that anyone needs to do in order to process. And um, I hate to use the word heal from grief and loss because I don't actually think that's what happens. Um, maybe integrate is the right word. Um, it's it's interesting. I um, and I'll probably be talking a lot about this on on today's episode. I'm I'm sure I mentioned in the conversation with Madeline and Hannah. Um, I also yesterday interviewed my friend Kestrel, who was the sort of connective tissue into me being um, uh, talking with these two today. Kestrel is a friend of mine uh, who's a therapist who I met through uh, the astrology world. And, um, she has always been in the climbing community and it's a world that I have to be honest, I never really understood, um, the whole sort of popular craze around climbing movies. And, um, I always felt sort of outside of it and confused, certainly never judgmental, but I recognized there was something I didn't really understand. And it was weird because I love the outdoors. I love certain types of risks for sure. I think physical risk is something that I don't do a ton of. Um, I would say emotion and risk maybe is the wrong word. Emotional risk, um, vulnerability, moving into vulnerability, which does definitely feel risky and is uh, in many different ways. Um, so I certainly, and I don't know if, if you all, whoever's listening right now, listen to my conversation with Akshay about fear. If you haven't, I recommend it. Um, but we sort of talked about those two 
types of fear, the fear for your physical life and the fear around your emotional safety. Uh, And I feel like maybe that was unknowingly sort of the first time I was trying to unpack or at least um, think about what the connection between those two things were. Um, And to be honest, I I don't really know what, uh, I don't know how to fully describe the connection. Clearly there are parallels and I'm I'm becoming fascinated with both. Um, but it's it's fascinating because uh, I always sort of thought like there's this community of people who are doing all these like crazy adventures and climbing and I, I, you know I, there were a couple of opportunities for me to have people like that on my podcast and I really didn't understand how that would fit into the theme of what I was trying to talk about. Um, and then, uh, my friend Kestrel sent me an episode of the Runout podcast that had Hannah, uh, Hannah and Madeline on it. And they were talking about grief and how they were uh, creating this fund. And given that it's me and I'm really into grief, it's my favorite thing. Um, like all the pieces sort of started falling together and I was so touched and moved by their conversation on that podcast that I really wanted to have them on my show. And I, I recognized a lot more nuance in that community and I was very touched by the complicated nature of choosing to go and do something dangerous and how to process a loss that in some ways feels maybe not inevitable but so common and expected to some degree. I just felt like I had a lot of empathy and sympathy and interest and curiosity in a way that I didn't before. And it's strange because I feel very consumed by this world at the moment, uh, a world I've not really participated in at all. But uh, in having this conversation with Hannah and Madeline, they have a website uh, where they have filmed, I think there are audio and written stories as well, but there are these beautifully filmed Um, pieces featuring people in the climbing community telling their story about grief and loss. And it's so moving and so simple and so human and real and um, really being able to connect with those individual people and their stories in that way, talking to my friend Kestrel, whose uh, first love, Johnny Kopp, was, uh, he died uh, on the mountains. Um, and she's been sending me videos and um, poems he wrote, and I just feel so touched, and I feel really grateful to this sort of world of interesting, dynamic, adventurous people. And I, I don't really get it, to be honest. I don't know why at this time in my life, right now, in this way, that I feel sort of surrounded by the climbing community. (laughs) And I would say surrounded in a mostly emotional way, not physical way. I'm not really like climbing myself or hanging out with all of them, but I feel like energetically present in that world in a way that sort of has surprised me and I didn't expect it. And I don't know, maybe it's just my, you know, intense desire to surround myself with realness right now. Uh, that has been a part of my life that definitely I've craved more and more of, especially in the past few years, and has come to, I feel like, a critical mass at the moment. 
Um, I just don't have time for anything less than like total rawness and realness and vulnerability. And I feel so sensitive and overly saturated by anything that isn't that. And these conversations around grief and loss um, and the duality of like joy and pain and life and death, I just feel very enriched by that space right now. And I also wonder, I don't really have anything super intelligent to say about this, but I have been thinking quite a bit. I've always, as you all know, love nuance and paradox and um, sort of oppositions, but I've been noticing more and more how, how I hold these oppositions within myself um, very strongly. And I would, I would say not just oppositions, but extreme oppositions. And um, I think perhaps I'm starting to notice that my sort of external interest in and curiosity around duality and opposition and nuance is obviously um, semi-subconscious way for me to understand and see myself as a whole a whole that contains these seemingly oppositional pieces. And I definitely, I go through waves in my life, I think, sometimes of mm, feeling or wanting control or giving it away and just letting things happen. Certainly prior to 2017, I think I never let go of control in most cases. Um, and finally for the first time did, uh, and that's always a practice, the relinquishing control. It's, you don't just do it once or realize it's the thing to do. And then like you learned it and you're a pro and you're an expert because I think we are all very much wanting to various degrees, wanting to hold on to something and control something. Uh, and the conversation I had with Kestrel yesterday, which you'll hear next week, um, that question of why, like we want to understand, we want to logically unpack, we want to rationalize when it comes to these big profound questions of life and death. Obviously there's something I think of value in the questioning and the curiosity, as long as you recognize that the answer is in fact the question, you're not ever going to get there. It's just a way to like move forward a little bit, but I feel I feel the sort of magic and synchronicity all over the place right now. And I think that's because I have sort of been forced into a position and coming back from Thailand, my friend had this, was in this really tragic, confusing accident um, and seeing how obsessed I am uh, and all of us, all of us sort of in the situation, we're all like seemingly obsessed with trying to make plans and trying to control things and trying to understand things. And, and this is coming from, you know, a group of people who are extremely sort of self-aware and, um, intelligent and, and recognize that that's not always the m most practical approach, but we do, we, we're doing it anyway. It's just sort of like this unconscious mechanism that keeps happening, uh, so I'm I'm grateful to be sort of pushed have uh, be pushed into this space at the moment in my life again, maybe not as extreme as it was for me personally a couple of years ago, but pushed into a space where I don't even have that option. And when you don't have the option, and you just sort of let go, 
and you are in a space where mostly you're just watching and listening, it feels it feels oddly disassociative in like a very present kind of a way. Um, because you're not just, you're not numb, you're not paralyzed, you know, you, you're, you're able to step forward, you're able to reach out, but the movement is very intentional and subtle in a way and not extreme. It sort of feels like that space is like the moment you wake up in the morning and you can't move very fast. You can definitely move. You're aware, but you're sort of in that dreamlike state. I sometimes do this thing, you know, when you wake up and you don't know where you are, I sometimes purposefully try to stay there when that happens as long as I can, because it feels like you're existing in some sort of liminal space. And I'm not paying attention. I, I don't focus on my mind. My mind is going to try and figure out where are you? Uh, what are these different things that you're seeing that can give you clues as to where you are? And, and I try to cut that part off and I try to just, just look and feel and listen, but not let it connect to the part of my sort of rational brain that's trying to put the pieces together. And it's so cool. It feels so good. Um, it feels like a lucid dream, sort of. And I, I feel really grateful to be as much as possible in that state. Because I think it's fucking magical, and I think it's so much more complex and beautiful. And it's not as hard in that space to recognize oppositions or dualities. You're just sort of swimming in all of it. And it's, you know, the last thing I'll mention about this too, I don't, I was thinking like, I don't really know how to tie this in. Um, but this, this aspect of vulnerability you know, I think part of why I feel so touched by the work that Hannah and Madeline are doing in the climbing community is because I recognize that talking about grief and loss within that space is extremely vulnerable. You know, you're basically getting down on your knees and saying, like, I need help. I feel scared. I feel isolated. I feel alone. I don't know what to do. And you put yourself at the mercy of everyone around you to either accept you and hold you or push you away because they can't handle your pain because your pain reminds them of their pain or because they're just not equipped or because they were shamed for feeling those feelings and they're going to project that onto you. There's something very vulnerable about just not knowing and being like, I don't know, I just, I'm just, I just hurt or I don't want to try and figure this out and I don't really want you to figure it out for me either. I just want you to be this container for me right now of this unknown. It's so important that we, I think it's so important that we are in both places. I think I feel very grateful to have had the experience that I had where I needed that support so that now I recognize how to give that support to other people. I don't think that's necessarily something you can like go to a class and learn. I think practicing 
vulnerability yourself and your personal life is what gives you the skills to hold other people in that space. So I recognize how fucking terrifying it is to be out of control when these tragic things happen in our life that we didn't expect, that we don't know how to understand. We want to grasp and hold on so much and we can't. We just have to lie down and surrender and listen and watch to whatever comes to us, whether that's symbols or what's in our dreams or the people that come and physically stay there with us. You know, obviously I think it's, you know, rather hyperbolic at this point, but it's like that stupid thing of, oh, well, if this didn't happen to me, I would have never gotten to where I was. If this didn't, if these losses didn't occur in Hannah and Madeline's life, they wouldn't have created this fund. Um, and you want to make sure that you're not saying that in a way to reduce or deny the pain of a thing, right? Like if my, you know, parent didn't abuse me, I wouldn't be as strong as I am now. Like that's a fact, but also another fact is that that hurt and that there's going to be a lot of pain and sorrow and sadness and anger and all of that too. Um, to deal with and to move through. Again, oppositions, duality. We have to hold both at the same time. But having said that, I think anyone that's sort of gone through a really difficult time in their life, you know, to hold on to and grasp onto the understanding that like everything that's happened up until that point was sort of preparing you for that. And in a year, five years, 10 years, on your deathbed, that's going to continue to happen. The path be, illuminates itself in a way that feels beautifully chronological, where even at the time it didn't make sense. I have this thing about the number 17, um, where, you know, I up until a few years ago, I didn't really even understand what synchronicity was. I don't think I was paying much attention to my surroundings. I was living sort of like a horse with blinders on. Uh, just sort of focused with, with what was directly in front of me and what I could hold on to. And eventually I, you know, went through this, for lack of a better word, spiritual awakening, dark night of the soul, whatever. Um, and I started, I sort of made this conscious decision that like my number was 17. I was born on the 17th. I've always just really liked that number. And when I sort of made this decision about like, I want to see signs, I started seeing 17 every, everywhere. And at first I was an idiot and was like trying to infuse meaning into what that meant, you know? Oh, I saw a 17 in this place. So like, what does that mean? Like, oh, this person's favorite number is 17 too. Like, what does that mean? You know? Um, and then I realized that like, that's first of all, the wrong approach, but it, it, I didn't, the right approach wasn't to reject it entirely and be like, that's stupid. But what I started to do is I just saw when I saw those 17s, I'm like looking at a box right now as I'm recording this in an office that has an account number on it that ends in 17. Um, I started to see the 17s just like uh, markers on a trail. They don't mean anything other than to say like, hi, welcome. We've been waiting for you. You're still on the right path. And that's like, super simple in my mind. And you know, is it just that I think about the number 17 a lot, so I see it everywhere? Maybe. 
but I'm not taking any action to where that assumption would harm me. I'm just in it. I'm just observing. And, you know, I, I like, I think I've probably talked about this before. I like to approach all forms of sort of spirituality or synchronicity in a way that's like, what if it were meaningful in a way that I'm not able to comprehend? What if there was something bigger? What if astrology was real? What if, you know, what if, what if there's something greater than this? I'm inclined to believe that, but I also don't know for sure. So I'm try. I try to live in the space in between. It could totally be bullshit or it's real. If it's real, how does that make me feel? What does it make me want to do in the world? As long as I'm being really conscious and intentional and those choices are positive, I think feeling like I belong exactly where I am, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be, even if this is a painful, terrible time in my life, that's a beautiful thing. I think that can take us very, very far. It's a feeling that I absolutely had before ever thinking or defining myself as spiritual. I was in the worst place I'd have, I'd have, I'd ever been. And yet I felt oddly equipped and oddly calm in knowing uh, I don't need to get out of here. I just need to fucking be here right now. Be here now. Yay, Ramdas. Anyway, I'm probably blabbing on a bit. Um, it's hard to logically, with words, talk about these things. They are so beyond words. <laughs> Um, hopefully, uh, Madeline Henna and I did the best we could, but if you're in that space right now of fucking tragedy or confusion or a lack of knowing, I don't want this to sound overly simplistic, but like, it's where you're supposed to be. Just observe It'll change. Time will pass. And you'll look back and be so grateful and your emotions will contain all of these different parts. But grateful. I didn't understand what gratitude meant until everything sucked. <laughs> Interestingly. <laughs> all right. I'm going to stop talking. Um, before I go, I want to read a poem by David White. Um, I was having a very intense conversation with a friend for a very intense couple days. And we were talking about abandonment and feeling hurt or vulnerable and how to communicate that or wondering if someone knew they were hurting us or not. And, um, we're having these really intense conversations and a family friend just came and knocked on the door relatively unexpectedly. And we were talking about literature and poetry and he decided to re, uh, recite this poem by David White, Everything is Waiting for You. And it was one of those beautifully synchronistic moments where one of the lines in the poem um, was about abandonment 
To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. And he had no idea that we had just had this really intense conversation identifying that that's the feeling that we were talking about. And he recited that line and we both looked at each other. (laughs) And we were both just like, "Uh uh-huh. Okay, so here we are. Here we are in this space where we're opening and listening and observing And that line of that poem, not just the line itself, but the fact that that line entered into our fucking lives, just dropped in like that at the most perfect time. It got me to totally rethink sort of the framework of where I was coming from and really helped us both to further understand what the issue was and how to resolve it. So it's a beautiful poem. It has a lot to do with sort of understanding and seeing and feeling the meaning of everything around you. So I am going to play you out with that. Um, And the music that you'll hear in the background is called Friends Are Lost by um, Mike Howe. Uh, It's a really gorgeous song and obviously um, applicable to this conversation. Uh, If you want to support the podcast please share an episode with your friends. Um, And the other really helpful thing you can do is uh, subscribe on the iTunes store, uh, leave some stars and write a review. If everyone that listened to this, which is several thousand of you, (laughs) wrote a review for the podcast, it would make such a fucking huge difference. Um, The more that people interact with a podcast and like the better ratings and the more reviews and the more subscriptions, the more the podcast shows up in search results, especially because my podcast has a lot of words and no one knows how to spell millennial. Um, It becomes very difficult for people to find it sometimes, even though it's there. So if you enjoy the show, if you've been listening for a while, if you found it valuable, I'd really appreciate you hitting subscribe, leaving some stars, and writing a quick review. It can be literally one word. Um, But there are so many listening, so many of you listening to the show and not that much um, interaction on that page, which I know probably on the outside seems relatively unimportant, but um, it is important. And I think important just to like recognize that we're all a part of a community here, even though we're in different places. So it's one way to sort of touch base with and see in some sort of tangible way, like how many of us are here together. Love you all. Talk to you next time and or at the end of this episode. (laughs) Bye. great mistake is to act the drama as if you were alone. As if life were a progressive and cunning crime with no witness to the tiny, hidden transgressions. To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. Surely even you at times have felt the grand array. 
the swelling presence and the chorus crowding out your solo voice. You must note the way the soap dish enables you, or the window latch grants you freedom. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. The stairs are your mentor of things to come. The doors have always been there to frighten you and invite you. And the tiny speaker in the phone is your dream ladder to divinity. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing even as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. Everything is waiting for you. Madeline and Henna, and you both are the founders of the Climbing Grief Fund. Um, and I'd love for you, maybe we can start with just giving the audience an overview about what that is. I, I uh, was introduced to both of you by a close friend of mine, Kestrel, who's also involved in this project, who I think I'm going to have, as I mentioned, I believe, on the show separately. So she can we can do like a sort of part two and talk more about psychotherapy and stuff in general. Um, yeah. So uh, she told me about you and I listened to the Run Out podcast and I, uh, that you both were on. And I, I, I've not had that close of a relationship to climbing or the climbing community at all, but I was always sort of like intrigued and fascinated by it. Um, and then when I heard the Run Out podcast and just developed a closer relationship with Kestrel and sort of heard, heard her talking about it in such a beautiful like archetypal spiritual way as she does um yeah I, I felt like and and also I'm a big uh I always felt, sound weird saying this like I'm really into grief but I'm I'm there <laughs> you are I, yeah, but, um, <laughs> um and it was something that I uh processing my own grief was I always say it was like sort of akin to psychedelics for me like that was my mm. drug I guess in a sense and really woke me up to a lot of things um so when I thought about grief in relation to climbing, it was like that sort of felt like my like in to sort of develop a, a closer relationship with this whole world. Um, 
so having said all that, I would love to hear about what the what the climbing grief fund is and does, um, and then we can sort of jump off from there. Okay, so about what it is and does more than like its genesis and such. We can do both. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So the Climbing Grief Fund has been around now for, I would say, a year. Uh, I did a fundraiser in 2018, uh, a climb with a friend um, trying to plant a little flag and get this uh, start building a community around the topic of grief and loss in the climbing community and really see where it would go from there. Uh, When I started envisioning the program, it was in its most simple form, something that I thought should live at the American Alpine Club, which is the main national organization in the States for climbers that does a broad range of stuff from advocacy to an education, uh, kind of policy, more level work to uh, environmental stewardship projects to like rescue benefits for climbers. It's just like a whole sprawling, like the organization of climbers and so um henna actually and i and one of my best friends longtime climbing partner were in climbing in the wind river range in 2017 in the summer and there was an accident in there when we were in there and we ended up being present for uh attempted body recovery and then walking out with the partner uh who survived the accident and she was uh, she was a recipient of a grant that the American Alpine Club gives called the Live Your Dream Grant, and uh, that incident just started me thinking around uh, how our community continued, from my perspective, to really fail to show up for the other side of going for it and risk taking when things don't work out really well. And that being a very obvious place that we could be holding space better for each other. Um, it had been on my mind before I've been a professional climber since sort of a, it used to be more of a vague term. So I would say I've been a professional climber for, since 2008 and, uh, uh, really been aware of how companies can be really complicit in the risk-taking and then, you know, what's their role when their athletes um, that they've been sponsoring uh, don't return from these adventures that they've sponsored. So all this stuff was on my mind and came to a head in 2017, that summer moving into the fall. Uh, I was most directly impacted by uh, my friend Quinn Brett's accident and when she lost the use of her legs in a fall and then um, the death of Inga Perkins and Hayden Kennedy committing suicide the evening after uh, her death. Um, She was his soulmate and uh, I, uh, I went to 
dark places that fall and summer and really looked outside of the climbing community and climbing spaces to return to myself and um, do deeper soul work uh, that uh, I was really craving. And, uh, and that grief work was very helpful for me and the framework that I found with a vision quest. Um, and I, I came sort of back online to climbing, wanting more for our community. Like I care deeply about climbing. I really want uh, my fellow climbers to be able to connect with the natural world in a less narrow way uh, and, and find resource there and, and support one another better um, and be more knowledgeable about grief and trauma as it arises and, and other mental health issues that I think need visibility, but that's really been my starting place with it. Uh, so that's my, the meandering origin story that Hen has been present for the whole time uh, and a creative part of. Hmm. Well, yeah. I don't know when we started thinking about the story archive project, then. I don't know if you want to go ahead. Hun. Well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I feel like that. Thanks, hon. <laughs> <laughs> Madeline and I are honeys. Um, yeah, so in case you have a hard time distinguishing our voices, this is Henna. That was Madeline. Um, yeah, well... I don't think you remember, but I was telling you about the media element of this, pretty, like pretty much the day really? you mentioned <laughs> you mentioned the the project. Um, as a filmmaker, I just realized that it's going to need a face. Um, you know, it's one thing to make a fund, and it's another thing to uh, make it known that there's resources, and then kind of also make it sort of cool to feel stuff and to go towards discomfort. And um, so the media and the story archive project and the film are really sort of my hopefully gentle attempts to showcase the people who are really brave that, you know, go towards those hard feelings and, you know, survive to talk about it on and, um, that seemed like a really, really important first step as the, as the services and the, you know, the offerings that the grief fund are going to give back to the community or as those sort of become and become born and are developed, um, you know, just starting the conversation, just talking seemed like the first, the first really obvious step. And that was something that, um, film could do very, very easily. So um, it occurred to me that that could be the first step. And so, so yeah, that started happening. Yeah. You guys have quite a bit of them now online, I see. And have you been doing them like all throughout this sort of year? Mm -mm, well, I wish. No, binge, we, um, binge approach. Yeah, oh, we, yeah. It, I, it's my dream to actually get a whole year sort of like road trip mm. story archive project funded. Um, so that we can do sort of a more 
continual collection of people's stories, like true archiving of, you know, uh, the American community. Uh, we've only done two interview sessions though so far, one at the outdoor retailer show, which we were able to pull in a lot of people from around the country. Um, and then one more here at home in Colorado. So I think there are 21, 22 interviews on the website right now, and we have nine more to release. Um, and we are also uh, planning on doing another interview session at the end of April as well. Um, hopefully it's not set yet, but that, uh, you know, we have no funding for, so uh, we're just chipping away as that at that whenever it's possible to yeah. do. And, um, and then I'm fitting it into my work as best as I can. Uh, but yeah, I think it would be amazing to expand that just the really story core style, non-aggressive sharing of people's experiences with this topic. That would be amazing. Yeah. And I can imagine just the, like, I wanted to ask you guys about community in general, because I, uh, in thinking about, like, I have a podcast and I travel around the U.S. in a van during the summer and like meeting with people along the road is so vital because I think so many of us feel like we're all alone and to be able to, I mean, selfishly to be able to meet people, but then also be able to introduce them to each other has been, I feel like mm. the, one of the most valuable pieces of this whole project for me. Um, so I would love to hear, uh, a bit about what role community has in this work or what role you hope it has. Um, I was listening to a bit of Alex Honnold's, the beginning of his uh, video that you guys recorded. And he talked a bit about like the difference between processing these things alone and in the community um, and just sort of hear how you're wanting to or trying to leverage that in this project. Yeah, I, are you cool if I go? Yeah, go for it. Mm -hmm. That, yeah, the community piece is obviously a central thing on our minds. Uh, whether we've done it well yet is, uh, is a question whether we're doing that consciously, especially one, one context is as we take these, we take these interviews, um, our follow-up and like building community with the, you know, with those people who are showing up, I think we want to do that better. Um, like we're going to have a film premiere and we want to make sure anyone who's able to comes to that or comes to the different events. And then how we're, how we're I think, building community with the people who are showing up actually uh, and have stories. I think we're, we're less, uh, less certain how we're doing that. And, and it's really been this, the start of this year, we started having those conversations of doing that more consciously. Our workshops are like, the most obvious outreach that we've done into the community. And those occurred last fall at the Cragging Classic, um, which is an event that the American Alpine Club does annually. And they have seven different cragging classics throughout the state. So we had workshops at those uh, events. They were three to four hour grief and trauma workshops. And they were really like this beta testing kind of forum for us of who's showing up, what are the needs, uh, two different kinds of people showed up. 
uh, people in distress, I would say, and people really acknowledging that this is something that is a reality in climbing and alpinism and ski mountaineering and that they want to know how to better support their friends and just be better equipped to deal with stress as it occurs. Uh, and so wanting to be part of that community that's you know, building, building our capacity. So that's informing our workshops moving forward, uh, building out more of a resiliency, uh, psychological first aid, stress injury focused one, uh, for those format workshops and um yeah just thinking mindfully about what our offerings are um going to be in organizations or uh companies um really where the need's going to be uh so that's one community piece we're focusing on the workshops and then this climbing grief fund ambassador program for this year. So that could be individuals who interviewed or other individuals who really expressed wanting to be involved and that being a great starting point for having them as people who are educated somewhat on this topic, want to learn more. We have some training of time available for them and can build community with those really interested people first and see how we can develop from there. Um, there's all kinds of ideas, but I think that's, that's a starting point with building a community of interested individuals. On the, on the, well, what, I don't have to say anything. <laughs> you can if you want to. Well, it's just, uh, I, I would just, something came to mind when you said community and um, a friend of mine recently told me that, you know, processing the, the loss that she's most recently processing, she's realized that grief is the, the most isolating experience that she's ever known. And it's made her feel the most lonely because she describes grief as sort of like the fingerprint of emotions. Mm. It's, it is true. It's not really, it can't be shared in your way by anybody else, mm. um, which may, you know, has made her feel incredibly isolated. And I would imagine if you spoke to other people, they would have a similar, uh, they would agree to some level with that. It seems like it. And um, I think what the grief fund is trying to do, especially in the outreach and media part, like the, the sharing element in terms of just sharing people's stories, is to offer points of connection for people in that abyss um, that they wouldn't have normally been able to make because everybody is really ha probably having the same feeling of isolation. And um, so through through the interviews and through the film i think what you know as as she was talking i think what i was sort of impulsively or intuitively trying to do is make these connections for people before they know they need them mm. <laughs> so that with you know if we can get as enough stories on the website as possible one of those stories is going to speak to somebody somehow in some way and it won't be it won't encapsulate some you know their entire experience but there will be nuggets in there that could potentially help to soften that experience of isolation 
Um, and I think it's a lot to ask the community to come out and cry together. But if we can create that, those threads, you know, alone in your kitchen on your laptop, uh, I, I still think that's really meaningful. Uh, yeah. So hopefully the media can, you know, help a little bit in that way for some people. I'm not going to say it's going to help everybody, but yeah, yeah, hopefully somebody will find something in those interviews that they can feel connected to. I hope. Yeah. And I would imagine too, I mean, it seems like this took a, something like this took a while <laughs> to sort of get started. And I would imagine that maybe that's potentially because the conversation around grief in the climbing community maybe wasn't happening, although correct me if I'm wrong, at least not to this extent. And it's almost like not only putting out the stories and hopefully it's like getting, I mean, I hate to sound like markety, but like getting ahead of the message in a way to sort of say like, this is what we're talking about. Like this is oh, yeah. why this is beneficial. Um, mm-hmm. So I, and I, I would love to hear like why, if you think this just happened when it, when it was ready to happen, which I'm sure it did, but did you anticipate some sort of pushback or was there some sort of um, like overlying uh, layer of the climbing community that were like, they didn't want to go here necessarily before? I think that's probably an area of nuance that we could get into. I, I think, uh, we've experienced a lot of enthusiasm for the project and really uh, outpouring of interest in terms of people who want to be involved or momentum around the story archive project. Uh, Curiosity. Yeah. I'm really curious when we launch uh, the individual therapeutic grants in the middle of February I have a feeling a lot of people will utilize those um we'll see like I I think like our community is very ready for this topic and it's a no-brainer for a lot of our community even on the heels of a stereotype of stoicism and moving on and uh suck it up kind of uh elements or dominant paradigms uh i think this is something that when given the opportunity a lot of our community shows shows up for this uh in one way or another um and there's a big yes so I think that's the main message or main, main thing I've felt. I think in terms of companies and industry. that whole, in, yeah, the industry world. I think here, here the industry really does, there is a line between the culture and the community of climbing and alpinism and the industry of climbing and alpinism. And they're not, you can't separate them entirely, but the um, they do feel very different in this conver- in having this conversation. Really, it's a different conversation with those two areas. Does that sound accurate, Caroline? Yeah, I, I mean, I 
I'm thinking of a number of things, but I, I, I think we just, we haven't experienced yet the outpouring of financial support from companies, for example. Um, and we, uh, are working towards that. And I think that it's very possible, but it's going to take some leaders in the industry to, have changed that tide and we're not those we're not believers in the industry so uh i still think there's a stronger culture of moving on um dead people don't sell jackets very well kind of thing and like i i don't know yeah i don't know how that conversation uh is gonna like start being held better and look, you know, look more mature in, in those, in those companies where danger is really a part of their brand, but it doesn't feel like death is really a part of their brand. So, um, yeah. Do you have thoughts around that? Yeah. Like, (laughs) it's just like a weird topic to like say that. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, death isn't a part of their brand. Yeah. 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 No, it, it, when you think about it, it's kind of interesting. Of course, death isn't a part of the brand, you know, like a a brand isn't going to want to say like, we, (laughs) we We endorse death in the mountains. (laughs) Uh, We send our athletes out to die, (laughs) but it's, I think that, I mean, I think mature is a really interesting word that you use Madeline and and this might come out as a little bit of like a a challenge to the industry like that's mature a little industry is like could we have that conversation of death when it happens because it's it's not going to stop happening and the grief fund certainly isn't you know out there advocating for not rock climbing (laughs) where you know the message is to keep rock climbing and also to bring bring the shadow side of, of of the sport kind of in so that um, so that the resiliency, the mental and emotional resiliency can really, you know, have some staying power and, you know, companies have a huge influence in culture. And so, um, I think it would be so, so, so wonderful to see that brought into companies as, um, like bringing in support for their athletes and, um, getting, life insurance for their athletes, you know, just acknowledging that you're doing dangerous things and we'd like to support you as best we can and support your family as best we can in that, you know, because the case, you know, the, the people climbing these big mountains will be climbing the big mountains, whether they're getting paid or not. Um, you can argue forever about pressure and social pressure. And is it there? Is it, is it not there? So many people have different thoughts on that. But at the end of the day, it's dangerous, and um, and it, I think that's okay that it's dangerous. And I also think that there can be more maturity in that conversation as well. We don't have to make it less dangerous. It's just balance the scales a little. Um, so what so would that, maturity that would be- look like? Would maturity look like it looks like life insurance? Looks like um, like, like a things- sta- like a standard procedure of really acknowledging what's happened and and like uh incorporating longevity into support for families of athletes who've died maybe not um there's often a like a big burst of support in the very beginning and then it um 
tends to sort of fizzle out and, you know, building in a, a system that's sustainable for the company and that can, you know, really acknowledge the, the grieving process for what it truly is, which is a really long lasting thing. And it doesn't mean that the company has to support the, I don't know what it would be in technically. It's just, um, yeah, like stick, stick with it a little longer and set up a, setting up a, a framework that, um, can hold the weight of a death. Uh, right now the scaffolding is a little flimsy. Yeah. I think I hear what you're saying. I mean, what the nuts and bolts would be, that would be up to a company, but, but things like if there was, if there was an acknowledgement that then, then is turned into policy, then it would be things like, okay, those athletes that you pay over $50,000 a year, like if they die, you're paying their families $10,000 a year for next five years or something like that. Um, and, and, and procedures around, post-incident response in a company. And then what we've been hearing about some companies potentially bringing a therapist on, you know, on the staff for the athletes or life insurance policies for the athletes, health insurance, those sort of things. Um, Those all seem like obvious things that are, are taking a lot of work to get for athletes, but we're definitely at a place, a point in time in the industry that they're totally possible Financially, I think so, but I, I don't know about, again, I don't know about the nuts and bolts, but yeah, those things sound like maturity to me. Mm-hmm. Sounds like, oh yeah, this is really dangerous and this would be a good thing to do. Um, you don't have to get super woo-woo about it. Just Yeah. Well, I do imagine like it, it would require awareness around like what I feel like is a two-pronged thing. Like one is that like this is an industry and a community where like deliberate intentional dangerous choices are being made which I think probably already Mm -hmm. is like a taboo conversation right like you asked for it kind of a thing um Mm -hmm. and then I think secondly like acknowledging that it's dangerous so these companies are basically (laughs) paying for that risk in other words um and and then acknowledging that regardless of that like these deaths still happen, this pain still happens, the grief still happens. Um, And I feel like that's a really mature conversation. And I think something I wanted to talk to you both about too, it's like, instead of like, I'm wondering if your viewpoint about it shifted at all from this sort of reactive, like, okay, we're in the climate community, therefore death will happen, therefore we need to talk about grief versus like the extent to which I think we as a species, just like humans in general are so cut off from like depth. And, uh, you know, I hate to call something like death beneficial in any way, but I think in terms of just like embracing the breadth of human experience and life, like these things can teach us so much. Um, And to like engage intelligently and maturely in that conversation about like what what can this teach us? What, what is the benefit of this for our community is like, I could imagine a really fucking complicated (laughs) area to enter into, especially when it comes to companies or corporations. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I think that we shouldn't have that that conversation. And like, I I just don't have the, the understanding of the company or the corporation enough to to engage, to engage in that, that crossfire. 
Well, let's talk about it just within the community itself. Like, uh, mm-hmm. I do think there's a public perception. I'm assuming it's not that much within the climbing community, but outside of it of like, well, or maybe it is within it as well. Like, well, it, it, of course, like, what do you expect? Yeah. Um, and whether or not that, yeah. that sort of also prevented something like the current climbing grief run from getting started prior. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I think that is a potential defense against going deeper into it, right? Um, defense against going deeper into the what this might bring up, what uh, allowing for a questioning period, allowing yourself to be impacted uh, by somebody's death or accident. Uh, because, of course, what you're doing is dangerous. And I think that's that black and white thinking that like really doesn't allow an individual to develop. Uh, Like we engage with risk to develop ourselves and to feel human and to uh, learn about making decisions in, in a way that takes care of ourselves and is on often a, really life-giving edge of uh, that questioning and self-awareness for yourself of what's my capacity, what's acceptable risk for me, really asking deep questions and and allowing those answers to change over time. Uh, so that's where, I mean, climbing is just like really beautiful, direct activity with those questions for engagement. Um, and so, sure, I think any of those trite statements cut us off from um, that potential development path and really what can be so nourishing about the activity of climbing um, and devastating about it. Uh, those are, that's a first thought. Yeah. Do you have anything to add to that? I don't know. Um, well, I mean, making the film something that's come out naturally that I wasn't planning on, that I wasn't actively trying to, uh, develop sort of in the film was this dichotomy between joy and pain that climbing holds so perfectly that, um, as painful as the deaths can be, climbing is that life-affirming. I mean, it, so it's a very, there is so much balance actually in, in the grieving of climbing specifically because of that, um, because of how much the act of climbing mountains and walls gives people. Um, there's an enormous potential to find balance and therefore, you know, coming back to that word maturity to understand what that is, to really hold life and death simultaneously because there's so much life and vitality and climbing because because of the fear and because of the danger and because you're you know you're very very aware of being alive when you can see the avenue for that end (laughs) you can see like oh if I fall here that will be the end life suddenly becomes a lot more vibrant um and then when it 
when somebody's life does end, it truly is that painful. So um, naturally in combining, you know, bits of everybody's interviews, what came out without me trying um, was just this constant back and forth between it, it gives me so much and it has taken so much and it gives me so much and it's taken so much. So I just, think it's a wonderful opportunity and place. I mean, it's a climbing grief fund and specifically climbing in grief, I think just is so, there's so much there to work with in, in learning how to hold both at the same time. And I truly believe that that will just like, that can just ripple into every other part of life is holding, holding both of those things happening simultaneously, the pain and the joy of something um, could be losing your grandmother, you know, the joy of having had her in your life and the pain of not having her there anymore. I mean, that it can be transferable to so many parts of, of living. Um, so I just think there's, in making this film, I'm, I'm just more and more convinced in the potential of this being a really powerful program, um, for this community. And, and I would imagine, yeah, it would just ripple out from there, just from, how applicable that concept of duality is to all of life. I, I'd like to, yeah, I was inspired by what you're, what you're saying, Hannah, and just thinking about um, life arc and climbing and how relevant that theme is to me as a uh, individual who's really centered their life around climbing in a lot of ways and my development arc. And uh, I think part of my questioning process with this grief fund is in feeling in myself and in looking around at my peers, feeling this like heaviness that um, I've had a question around like, is it necessary that we simply just have this like linear experience of accumulating more and more loss as we, as we climb and just kind of get heavier and heavier and like your bag just they're freaking dragging it. Like can't even like get it up the hill anymore. Um, like how, how do we, how are we taking that weight out of the bag? Um, and I, I really find resonance in this uh, concept of climbing being a place where we get to practice our hearts expanding in both directions um, or in all directions, but really in those directions of a lot of joy and a lot of sadness and that we're totally capable of doing that as humans and our community is really capable of this and uh, we just we need some education around it we need some space to practice uh, and we can all we can all do it uh, it's not it's not something that necessarily takes extensive training but really um, I think us saying yes, it's okay to do that is a is a great 
great starting place, I think, for a lot of people. I think that permission and some education and structure um, really starts helping people take weight out of their bags, process that initial loss of innocence that I think often a climber in their maybe 20s starts experiencing of, holy shit, like friends can die doing this. My mentor could die doing this. I could die doing this. Um, this isn't just me connecting to joy and trying hard. Uh, there's more going on here. If I, if I'm going to be in this for my life, like this is going to look different than I maybe initially thought or been signed on for. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, there's just like climbing aside, grief in general is so misunderstood. I mean, those who think or believe that grief is depression or that grief is very sort of like one note. I mean, I feel like I feel like it was like in the depths of grief that I finally understood gratitude, you know, <laughs> like that I finally yeah. understood what joy was. Um, and there's like, I mean, I wonder if they're outside of these sort of common misconceptions of grief. Are there others that you're finding pop up in the climbing community or like the biggest sort of like education points you feel uh, the need to sort of like drive home and, and educate the community about? I have two. Okay. One, grief is different from trauma. They're two different things. And two, we are hardwired as human beings to um, experience grief. So there's nothing about being human that is in any way inadequate to have that experience. Whatever grief looks like to you, you are 100% whole and capable because there is no human on this planet that will not experience some form of grief unless perhaps they die very young haven't gone through their whatever but <laughs> that's a big statement but yeah those would be the two that I feel like have been the most obvious yet also strongest lessons that I've learned so far grief is different than trauma and that we are completely capable and not only capable but prepared to deal with grief we are set up to deal with grief just as much as we are set up to be walking our body is designed to walk on two legs and our psychology is designed to process grief and then and then like a lot of things in a modern culture we've learned we've learned ourselves out of things and so there's a there's an education or a remembering perhaps that is required, but there's no additive needed. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the two biggest for me. And I would think too, like not only are, are we totally mm -hmm. capable and prepared, but in relation to the whole trauma grief thing that like, if we, 
Like I'd love to talk about what happens when we don't process the trauma through grief, or if you could elaborate on the distinction between those two things. Yeah. So grief is a nat, as far as I understand it, I am a filmmaker and artist, not a psychologist or grief specialist. (laughs) So I apologize to everybody listening who is a specialist and thinks that I'm doing this terribly. So I'm going to keep this as brief and as simple as possible. So I'm not blamed for lots of things, but anybody out there needing help, please talk to a psychologist. Don't listen to me. As far as I understand it, grief is a natural cycle of mourning. And by cycle, I mean probably lifelong. Um, Trauma is what happens when uh, an experience is not completed. There's been a block to the follow through of something. Um, and in the, in the case of where grief and trauma can often happen simultaneously, um, normally it's when somebody in the experience, and, and I'm thinking of an outdoor experience, I'm thinking kind of along the lines of climbing, not all experiences of trauma and grief, but where they often are aligned in the outdoors is where somebody doesn't have agency in an experience. They feel like they were powerless to do anything. Um, often that will start a cycle of trauma of trauma where there's no there is no follow-through um and lack of follow-through can come in many forms um uh but it's it's that and it's and and if and if grief is stopped is stunted the if the 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 process of feeling it and and like having a creative response to it um or having agency to like feel grief creatively in your own way. Maybe it's yelling out your window every morning. Maybe it's doing something, you know, whatever it is that you need to do or, you know, be alone for a month or whatever. Um, if that's not allowed to carry itself through that blockage could become a trauma, but grief isn't inherently a trauma. A trauma is something that happens because of a blockage somewhere, whether that's in the incident or post incident or something like that. Um, I'm trying to stay really vague about what that all could be because it could be any million, any million things. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that. That's how I understand the difference. The grief is a natural process of mourning and change and loss and all these things. Trauma is an experience that gets blocked and un- incomplete. And it's not the end of the road. You can always find a way to complete that experience later. It's not a death sentence. It's just, you know to identify it and then work on it and find creative ways to get through it. And there's any number of ways of doing that too. But so it's not, trauma isn't the end all. Um, It's just also not grief. And I would, I would probably differ in, if I had to choose two things, it would be that the grief piece of um, understanding it as a you know natural part of life, uh, and and then second, being that there really is no singular way to experience grief, but that you really do need to find a way to experience it. Like that's essential, and so that's where trauma can come in. And then I think a number of psychoeducation things that I, I think are and 
initial important notes for our community, one being identity, um, the climbing identity is a big piece of this, um, that somebody can be impacted on a number of levels. They can be impacted, uh, just because they were also a climber and didn't know that that person, um, they can go through a grief process when somebody dies, uh, and naming that and, learning more about trauma, learning more about the difference between the two, learning more about stress injuries. I think those are good starting places for our community. Uh, I think also what's become clear to me um, in this first year is subtlety with grief. Um, You know, the workshops that we did were not subtle. They were here at a fun climbing event and come to a grief and trauma workshop for three to, <laughs> three to four hours. Why don't you want to come? And, and there were some events where a lot of people came and others, people were very intimidated to come. And they're like, I've come to this fun climbing event and I don't know that I want to sit in a workshop for four hours when I could be going climbing this weekend. And that's been something I've been doing more in this of how we subtly thread this reality through our community in less over here's grief and over here's the fun. Uh, I think there's a lot of room for expression that um, grief brings up that can be really beautiful at climbing events, poetry, things threaded through, um, you know, just softening those edges. Um, and likewise having a presence of grief at all events in our, in our community, um, something that I really just want to have a ear towards. Yeah, I bet there's probably, I mean, this is, I think, with grief in general, this thought of like, once I go there, I'll never come back. (laughs) Like, if I give myself into these feelings, like, I'm just going to be there forever. And Mm -hmm. I would imagine this is like going back to the conversation about the companies, that there's this impression that once we sort of deal with the full range of what climbing is or what it can be or bring that no one's going to want to climb anymore. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, and I wonder, I mean, for, for uh, you as, you know, people that have sort of understood and lived within the space of grief, but also climb, like, where do you see the change happening for people? Um, like I assume people aren't getting deep into this work and then being like, you know what, screw it. I'm not going to climb. I would almost imagine that their sort of interest and understanding of it in general has grown. Um, and that it's just like a more well-rounded experience, but maybe I'm wrong. Sure. I mean, there are iterations of people's experiences that I think have leaned towards stopping climbing. Uh, Mm. But largely, I think people continue to climb and there's uh, 
a development of holding more paradox and holding more truth in your in your being and in, in discerning between uh, days of what's a what's an appropriate day to be out here. Uh, you know, how am I doing today? Learning to check in more. Um, what's an appropriate day to be more risky or not? Um, what do I need to do to um, acknowledge this part of me that's uh, not okay with me taking risk uh, and potentially getting hurt um, that you learn how to, how to have a relationship with that. Um, what do I do with this part of myself that really just wants to be out on the edge all the time and um, really hanging, hanging out there on such a thin line that it almost feels like you don't have any attachments um, to this life. So I, I think climbing can change for people and no longer be a, maybe it's too painful of an activity to engage with those questions, but um, yeah, it's not much of an answer, but. What I hear you say though, is that it doesn't seem to be the norm in your, in your experience that opening this Pandora's box actually sort of, like you said, rounds out the experience and allows climbing to, be more fulfilling in the end it's a bit of a bit of a road to get there but there is like it does yeah I mean it, that's what it sounds like the majority is that it, it does actually give give more of an experience and there are some people who decide not to keep climbing and that would be the case whether we talked about grief or not though sometimes people stop climbing for whatever reasons and there are some people whose climbing experience but just becomes narrower and narrower. Yeah. You know, what they're willing to do and what they're not willing to do or yeah. um, more and more sensitive and impacted but not yeah. trying to integrate that. Uh, and I think it's probably hard for me to have perspective. I surround myself with people who want to engage in those conversations with themselves and uh that you know that's part of what lights me up about climbing is having uh having conversations with people who are also also trying to be in that paradox for themselves or those paradoxes for themselves yeah yeah, I keep returning to just like I feel like how good of a metaphor climbing is just for like life in general mm -hmm. because you can say all of these things, right? Like there are those who experience a trauma or a deep grief about something and obviously make adjustments about, you know, for their life based on that experience. Like it does just make mm -hmm. us a more well-rounded person in general. Um which I don't know, I I I I'm hard pressed to say that like that in any case is not good. Just like that we have more experience and more knowledge and the capacity to understand more levels 
of things. Um, well, I think that's kind of getting back to what you were sort of uncomfortably saying before, which there is, there, there are gifts in grief and loss and mourning. Um, and that's not to say anybody would want to experience it necessarily or trade them for the person they lost, but, um, there, you know, I, I think that humans are masters at making meaning. And if we can make meaning out of something, then we can learn more about ourselves through that meaning that we're creating. And, um, you know, like any peak experience, which I would say grief is, although maybe it's like trough experience, mm, yeah. <laughs> so it's the opposite of a peak experience, but certainly it's like that, that elevated, um, you know, in that there is, there you are, you know, in that experience, there you are at your most authentic. And if that's not a gift, I don't know what is in this life. So, yeah. So, yeah, and that can be for any grief and loss. But that's where, and that's where sound bites are really tricky with this topic, right? Because we're like, grief is, was a great gift, you know? And I, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, the, like these formats are where these conversations have, you know, more truth in them because you can both, we, we just have the space to both talk about how it's never something one would want to seek out. And it's like this really essential part to us growing up. Yeah. Or it can, it can be this really essential part to us growing up. Yeah, it can be. It's, there's potential. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a weird topic. I mean, even when we started like me saying That's like, weird. I'm really into grief, like <laughs> what does that even mean? Like, um, but it's, it's just, I mean, if you can, you know, I sort of, I explained this, I think, okay, I'm going to try and form this sentence. Um, a lot of people, and I think for me too, like had a really hard time embracing like the nuance of my life in the sense of like, you know, I had a roof over my head. I had two parents, like I lived in suburbia. My life wasn't that bad. So like, I certainly didn't experience anything akin to trauma, you know? Um, and it was a sort of like bad word that I tried to just move away from because it felt kind of selfish and then I sort of reframed it for myself like if we just stop talking about about trauma let's just talk about like an experience that impacted or imprinted you in some way that then uh provoked you to make decisions for yourself uh, or Mm -hmm. live in a way that wasn't like totally self-serving um like and that can be obviously a teeny thing there can be small traumas over a period of time or But the fact is, like, it's not selfish to say that or to, like, own the fact that we had those experiences. To me, it's like if I think back to, like, let's say my mother or her mother, like, I don't think they had the resources or the privilege to actually come face to face with the trauma that they experienced or Mm -hmm. have the availability of, like, doing any actual serious grief work. So the fact that whatever space opened up the trauma lessened enough for me to be able to move into those spaces and deal with it. Like if I don't go there and do that, that's 
what I would, you know, that's selfish, um, that these things are like, uh, opportunities, doorways that are inviting us to walk through. Um, and I think totally like a really, I hate the word should, but it seems like a part of life that like should happen that we should, you know, feel comfortable or at least able to engage in. Yeah, I appreciate appreciate what you're saying of uh what I'm what I'm hearing is about like this this privilege of being able to do grief work and um like thank you for doing your work, you know, for doing the work that you see is an opportunity for you. And I do, I do think we are, we are opportunists as, as humans who are, you know, have any awareness and ambition. We, we see and create opportunities and, uh, and yeah, this is a, this is an opportunity right now in our time to, if you have the privilege to, to do some profound grief work. Um, and it sounds like, yeah, that that's opened a lot up for you in, in your life direction. Yeah. Um, which I would say is similar for, for me. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I think that's why I just appreciate, like, it's so much about the reframing of it for people. I just think, like, the words and the ways that we understand so many of these things are so outdated, and the misconceptions are endless. (laughs) Um, Yeah, because we have to start with, like, the word and what do you mean by that word, because the word trauma is used very differently in different circles. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's something, yeah, oh, go, go ahead. No, go. There's just something that I, I was thinking about as you both were talking and it just, you know, it occurs to me that there is a lot to grieve right now in the world. Um, for me, a big one is the environment. I have a tremendous amount of sadness and heartbreak when I think of the environment and not only that, but also sort of like, uh, I'm like a deer caught in the headlights. I don't know what to do. I am full of inaction. I have, uh, I freeze. Um, and there's something connected and this isn't a totally fold out thought, but there's something connected for me in processing grief, maybe not processing, but really like bringing it in, integrating grief into my everyday is slowly, there's something connected with that work and being able to then take responsibility for my part in that. And then with that responsibility, I think that's where I will eventually break free of that frozen state. Now I can do something. Um, and so even on that larger global, you know, human story, grief, I think is tremendously important for us to address because this is a time of mourning this is a time of mourning collectively on this planet. Like we are dying (laughs) and there's a lot of mourning that goes into that. And, uh, 
yeah, there's something connected that I haven't totally flushed out yet between doing that work and then, and then I can act and then I can engage and take responsibility for, yeah, again, for my part in that, in that dying. I mean, could you see doing your work as, as in part action, like part of the action? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. I mean, I don't have to be perfect before I start protesting in the streets, but yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Right. I don't know. I don't want to say that I have to, yeah, process everything and then I can go and do the work, but it's like, until I can acknowledge, until I've been able to really like pinpoint, ah, for me, pretty much on a daily basis, I grieve the environment. Um, now, now I get to actually start taking agency and like, just even acknowledging it. I certainly have, I will never end, not in my lifetime will I ever get over the grief because not in my lifetime will this planet be not dying, I think. <laughs> um, but, but the, yeah, there's something really powerful in that integration and then agency. There's agency in that integration, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Maybe it's a side note. Definitely kind of took it out there, but that's what I was thinking about as you all were talking. Well, there's so much opportunity. <laughs> it's kind of like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, anyway. yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's a side note at all. I mean, I, I would actually... Uh, I had Francis Weller on the podcast. I think one of you said you maybe had listened to that conversation. Yeah. Um, and his book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow. I mean, what happened to me, like I did not care about the environment, but when I did went through a lot of my own like personal grief work, it sort of like opened me up to be able to feel for and process the like external grief as well. Like they totally went hand in hand and it was like only, Mm. only when I sort of uh, was able to feel those feelings like personally for myself, was I able to be like, Oh my God, like what the fuck is going on? Like, this is so terrible. And, uh, and, and the way that I read Francis's book sort of after I had a lot of these realizations and epiphanies, which was amazing because it sort of like gave me context and words to understand all of it. Um, but I mean, he describes them as basically one and the same, like we can't even separate. How can we, how can we separate really ourselves from the planet or the environment? Like we are that. So in effect, and of course these were so many things that like our ancestors and, native people understood uh that we Mm -hmm. just (laughs) forgot you know or were raised to not learn um but yeah that they're the same that and uh and I think on the podcast I think he literally used the same analogy about deer and headlights um Mm -hmm. and that you know maybe the most um important or meaningful quote-unquote work or action is just like feeling (laughs) even though that might seem selfish or like it doesn't go anywhere um I mean for me I really do think about this as perspective and like the way that I live my life and if more people generations after me live their lives differently like you know I do think we corporations and this sort of like larger organism is running the world but I don't know like that larger larger organ organism is made up of lots of little pieces like we are the sum we're the parts of that big picture um and it'll probably take a while and maybe it'll never work but I don't know 
like how to do, like, I feel like the most meaningful thing we can do is just live our lives in a more like honest, full way. And I think part of that is feeling pain and teaching others how to and making sure other people feel safe doing that. Um, like and I, tying, I, no, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, and tying your interview with Francis Weller in, in again, and what Hannah, you were saying in terms of activism, I mean, he talks about the indigenous people of our country. They're the people who are, and other, other countries really being on the front lines of that environmental activism. And that's not a coincidence that they are certainly very connected to earth processes and feeling a grief process with that deeply. And that has moved them towards action. Yeah. I I think that's, that's inspiring for me um, in terms of feeling the grief. Yeah. I mean, numbness is pervasive. You can't decide to be numb in one area and not numb in another. It's not possible. Hmm. Yeah. Releasing your numbness in one area is going to have an impact in others, seemingly unconnected areas. You will start, I mean, feeling is radical. I think deep, authentic feeling is a radical act. And then sharing it is, I think, an incredibly dangerous act. Yeah. Not dangerous for us, but dangerous for, for the, yeah. For a norm that, um, that really thrives on, not being numb on on not feeling. Yeah. So yeah, I think I totally agree. Feeling is radical and in and of itself an act of um, resistance (laughs) against that. That is numb. All that, that encourages us not to feel. We make that t-shirt feeling is radical. It's a radical act. I yeah. love it. I would right. say that. <laughs> feeling it's a radical act. Millennials guide. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So millennial. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really, I mean, I, I want to like thank you both too, because I do think that I, in many ways prior to sort of learning about what you were doing or just being able to gain this perspective on it, that I just, I also didn't get it. Like I didn't get hmm. uh, the risk part in terms of like, I I understood that people said, Oh, it makes me feel alive. It's like, but aren't there other ways that like, don't. Um, and I feel like the work that you're doing, like to me now I see climbing and the, that community in general is like, if that's an avenue to get to this that we're talking Mm -hmm. about, right. And how to like wake up and do this work, then like, fuck yeah, I'm super into it. And, Mm -hmm. and how is it any less, you know, or any more complex or tricky or nuanced than anything else that we do in order to sort of like wake up to ourselves into the world. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's definitely reframed my perspective. Uh, And, um, and I, and I would hope, I mean, I guess maybe we can sort of wrap it up with uh, hearing from you both about like what's upcoming in this project or where you see this going. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it sounds like a pretty amazing opportunity to have a lot of really important discussions that go far beyond climbing in general. And then do you want to start with 
talking about what's upcoming with the film tour and film premieres and such. Yeah. So I guess that's going to be like probably the most outward facing uh, thing that happens. Certainly the most important for me because I've been working so hard on it. (laughs) But um, yeah, so the film will premiere um, on April 23rd here in Boulder at Neptune Mountaineering, which is a local climbing gear shop, um, cafe and event space. They're going to host a fundraiser for the fund, which will really be our first big fundraiser uh, film premiere. Uh, We'll have a panel of people who are in the film also there talking about you know, everything from what it was like to be in the film to meta stuff that we just kind of got into. We'll see what, ha- what happens out of that conversation. Um, and then, and then that will hopefully go on tour around the country and, you know, partially that's to help raise funds for the fund for the grief fund so that we can then uh, turn around and give that money back in an organized fashion. Um, and partly that's just also to, promote what we're up to and ideally challenge conversations like you know the film is constructed in a way that there's really no ending there's really no resolution or development in any sort of uh way that I've constructed and I hope that will ignite frustration uh sadness uh, curiosity uh anything really. I hope that people start talking. So we're, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do my best this year to get it in as many climbing gyms and gear shops and theaters around the country to start getting people to talk about it. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so that's the media arm of what's happening this year and the fund is coming together and there's lots to offer. So Madeline, take it away. Yeah, okay. I, I I think in terms of drum roll, but, um, um, vision for the fund. Uh, there there are a lot of a lot of developing parts uh, from the really concrete piece. Like these, we have fifteen grants for twenty twenty uh, for individuals to fill out a basic application who have been directly impacted by uh, grief or loss or trauma related to climbing, uh, they can get $600 towards therapy or a program that utilizes a professional framework to um, engage with grief or trauma. Uh, So that is exciting that that's coming online. And uh, these other pieces like the Story Archive Project, the workshops, the Climbing Grief Fund Ambassador Program. Those are all exciting. Let's see how those develop um, pieces. And in terms of the vision, I mean, I really hope to be challenged in this development of of this program, uh, both in learning from other people who have gone through deep grief processes and what has, what has supported and helped them, um, that they, they're really engaged in this and helping us build the community and resources that work. Um, and I guess, uh, just being a nimble, a nimble program that's 
responding to you know, where's our community at and uh, you know good news would be that those 15 grants are utilized in the first couple months because so many people are already on board with getting support and just need financial support and and we really have a problem of funding uh, or that um, you know a grief and trauma workshop is too basic and uh, that we, we need to be evolving that that workshop offering pretty quickly so I think in terms of a vision it's a vision of building community and um, and our capacity to deal with traumatic events as they occur, stressful events as they occur, and, and be more nuanced about um, how we approach risk and um, hold space for, for grief and loss in our community. So, so I, I, I think those, that's the bigger picture of I'm really curious you know, where it'll be in five years' time, what it'll look like. And if people want to like learn more or or support the project, they can go to because of a website, right? Yeah, you can go to AmericanAlpineClub.org/slash/grieffund and learn more about us and donate through that. Um, that's that's the best way. Um, you can email us through there and. Uh, yeah, if you're around Colorado, come to our film premiere on April 23rd at Neptune Mountaineering, or we'll be touring the film this summer, we plan. And the film is called Color of Morning. So that's the film awesome. title. <laughs> Write it down in your notebooks. <laughs> um, awesome. Okay, and lastly, I'm going to put you both on the spot. I always ask everyone that's on the show if they could recommend one book to the audience, either that has something to do with this conversation or that was just really meaningful for you in your life. Um, what might that be? Can each do one? I recently read the overstory and mm, agreed yeah. with the hype. It's wonderful. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It's definitely relevant, but even if it wasn't relevant, I'd still recommend it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a hard question. Always for me, <laughs> my memory goes in and out what's not in front of me. What's currently in front of me is The Trauma of Everyday Life by Mark Epstein. Mm. And that's been an interesting book, different perspective on trauma than I've been learning about through the way that people in our community have been talking about what trauma is, but really understanding um, trauma occurring every day and um, that we, um, a similar, similar thing that we're built to, we're built to process it and such, but that naming it is really important so that um, we can integrate it. And his approach uh, brings in a lot of Buddhist perspective um, He's a psychiatrist who um, was finding um, inadequacy in what he was able to offer clients without bringing a, a more um, more Buddhist perspective into his work. So um, that's been really interesting to read. Awesome. 
Well, thank you both so much. This was such a lovely conversation. Hello again. Thank you for listening to that episode. Please check out the work that Hannah and Madeline are doing. It's really important and moving and... Yeah, I've said this a hundred (laughs) times. If you want to support the show, like I said, please share an episode with your friends. Please leave a review on the iTunes store. Subscribe and rate it. Helps a whole fucking lot. Um... I am going to play you out with a song I heard just the other day. It's uh, by Joe Henry, who's a really fucking phenomenal musician. He released an album last year called The Gospel According to Water. Beautiful name. The whole album is like, I don't don't know, either one huge collection of poems or one long poem, but he wrote it very quickly. All the songs apparently came to him um, all at once when he was diagnosed with cancer, and they are very moving and complex and raw and uh the song i'm going to play you is called orson wells i would um highly recommend looking up the lyrics they are very moving and um sort of speak to these big intense unexpected tragedies that occur in our life and how we react to them and how we integrate them and how we metabolize them and how we make meaning of them so enjoy and talk to everyone next week. Shoes that know the dirt that lies 